Today I'm speaking with Juliet Kayem. Juliet is, as you'll hear, one of the leading experts on homeland security. And she's written a book, which I'm loving, entitled Security Mom, An Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home. Juliet served as an assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security, where she handled diverse crises such as the H1N1 scare and the BP oil spill. She was also uh, the Homeland Security Advisor for the state of Massachusetts. You've seen her very likely on CNN as an analyst. And she was actually a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2013 for her columns in the Boston Globe. She's a graduate from Harvard and Harvard Law School. She's currently on faculty at Harvard's Kennedy School, where I met her because she moderated the event I did with Majid Nawaz to launch our book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, for Harvard University Press. Juliet was great at that event. She was really a fantastic moderator. When you look at the background she has, resisting the impulse to take up equal time on the stage, giving her views, had to be excruciating, given how qualified she was to have expounded upon those topics. So if you look at that event on YouTube, you will see impeccable generosity and tact on the part of a moderator as well as an impressive case of jet lag on the part of yours truly. In any case, it was a real pleasure to get a chance to return the favor and have Juliet on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. And now I give you Juliet Kayem. I'm here with Juliet Kayem. Juliet, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, listen, you, you uh, and I first met, you moderated the event I did with Majid for the launch of our book at Harvard's Kennedy School. And I remember um, joking at the opening there, both when we were setting it up and, and actually at the event, I think, that he and I should have been asking you questions. <laughs> now, of course, that really wasn't much of a joke, given your background. So just tell our listeners briefly or at any length you want, just how you got into this and why you are in a position to know anything about security and terrorism and homeland defense. Well, uh, uh, that was a great forum. And thank you for uh, the compliment. I'm not sure it's deserved, but I have uh, spent uh, almost close to 20 years now in counterterrorism, national security and, and homeland security efforts. I was in counterterrorism before 9-11. There were a few of us in the field. I was a lawyer at the Department of Justice. Um, I, I don't want to call it the quaint days because certainly uh, there were victims of terrorism, but nothing like what happened on 9-11. Um, and um I, after 9-11, those of us who were in the field, a very discreet group, I was a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, um, you know, sort of became elevated in various ways as, as careers do when, when things happen. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, served on the a National Commission on Terrorism and then uh, served as the state. Uh, I'm in Massachusetts, the state's Homeland Security Advisor. That was a position that was created after the 9-11 attacks uh, that serve as a point person to oversee uh, the National Guard, emergency management, all the uh, public safety apparatus, and then served in President Obama's transition and then as a, an assistant secretary um, dealing with, uh, you know, the, the efforts, the, the things that were uh, going to impact the United States from a threat perspective. Uh, I've been a writer, an academic, and uh, on them, a CNN analyst, and uh, have had sort of a very career in in this in this space that a lot of people don't know about. So, um, and that and to be honest, it's not going away, as you know. 
Yeah, yeah. So now, so you served under two presidents, right? I did. I was a uh, president uh, under President Clinton, and so so, and that was the days of Oklahoma City. Um, and what got me more involved with international terrorism um, was the Africa Embassy bombings. People will remember that uh, 1998. Few Americans died, but our embassies were targeted in Tanzania and and Kenya. Uh, many Africans died. And it was really the first time that bin Laden sort of, who, who was known certainly as an entity in national security circles, uh, really did target U.S. Uh, interests, in particular an embassy. But he wasn't a household name. I mean, and so um, the cases arise, arising out of the Africa embassy uh, attacks uh, were, you know, they were sort of followed by the mainstream media, but most people w- wouldn't have known what Al Qaeda was or Bin Laden was. And I remember in, in one of the trials, a couple of the guys in Al Qaeda were, were captured. Um, there was some testimony from a former Al Qaeda member about Bin Laden saying not only um, how intimately involved he was with the Africa embassy bombings, in fact, at one stage was uh, had told the planners uh, to move a truck from, you know, one side of the embassy to another side, right? So he was very operational, uh, but also that uh, this was the beginning, that these sort of coordinated attacks. And then, of course, September 11th happened, and um, I was serving on the National Commission on Terrorism. Um, and, and you know, the, the media calls I got that day were so basic. I mean, they were sort of, who's this bin Laden guy? We're hearing about, you know, where is Afghanistan? You know, just just how people just did not have um, any sense of of what was going on in the world or or the threat that that had uh, caused such terror um, on September 11th. Yeah, I actually want you to describe how you spent your morning of 9/11 yeah. because uh, so I, I I should say I've read a little more than a third of your book at this point. I try not to be the the journalist who pretends to have read all of your book or or shows that he's read none of it. I'm loving the book, and I really recommend that our listeners get it and read it. It's Thank you. called Security Mom, and you have married the the insecurities of starting a new family with the insecurities of our global war on terror in a, in a really wonderful way. And oh, so, I want you, you to, to describe the morning of 9/11 and just how that proceeded for you. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. And the book, just taking a step back before we get to 9-11, is attempt to talk about these really difficult issues, whether it's terrorism or homeland security or the threats we face as a nation in a way that maybe people can grasp. Uh, and so I tell it as in, in the form of a memoir uh, uh, and what it's like to be in this field and raising three kids. And, and, and it begins uh, on the morning of 9-11. I would just, you know, I had I was in counterterrorism. I am uh, have a five week old child on the morning of September 11th. It's a uh, uh, I was having difficulties as most mothers do of um, having any semblance of organization in my own life, and uh, had decided I was gonna you know get back on my feet and head to New York that morning go visit my sister uh, and had uh, Cecilia with me. We're David. My husband is driving us to the train station to South Station here in Boston, and uh, we hear about the first uh, airplane. And I have to tell you, n- nothing was further from my mind that this was this was the thing that I had been warning about, right? We had all, those of us in the field have been saying, this guy, Bin Laden, this group, Al-Qaeda, wants a, a mega attack against the United States. I board the train, and about, you know, not very much longer, I get another phone call from David uh, that a second uh, a tower has been hit. Uh, and, it, you know, obviously at that stage, I know that, that, you know, one airplane hitting the World Trade Center may be an accident, two is not. 
And I am starting to get a lot of media phone calls, very few people in the field and trying to deal with those at the same time dealing with the newborn. At the same time, um, heading into ground zero on a train with, um, uh, you know, with my new baby. And uh, people, uh, you know, we're so used to the security apparatus now, right, sort of the TSA and, and, and airport security and travel security. Uh, but at that time, there was no protocols for anything like this. And so Amtrak, as one would suspect, they would do this, keep going into New York. And I keep staying on the train. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, very far into the train ride, so we're heading into New Haven, it just dawns on me, like, um, you know, I have one a responsibility to myself and my child, but also to others. I am, I am an expert uh, that, uh, that whatever Amtrak was going to decide to do, we had to get off this train, that it was irresponsible, if not dangerous, to enter New York City. And so essentially evacuate, uh, you know, stand on a train uh, bench and tell people, you know, what I what I believe to be happening, because, uh, you know, we don't at that stage, people information was not like it is today, you know, no iPhone, stuff like that. And um, and uh, and sort of evacuate the train, just say this is, you know, I know this world and uh, we don't know that this is over yet. Uh, and so, you know, standing on a platform in New Haven, trying to reach friends that I know live there and, and my husband who's back in Cambridge and uh, thinking, you know, even for me, I can't separate the expert from the mother, right? That, uh, you know, both my self-preservation and preservation for my newborn, uh, but also the needs of those on the train was that they just needed to be told what to do. Um, and it was the beginning of understanding that that uh, the, the expert and the mother were not so different and that a lot of times the skills in both are, are somewhat similar. I would then enter government in which that became very, very clear. So, so just to back up, so th there was a period when you were on the train yeah. when you knew that the second tower had been hit and you're headed into the city with your newborn on your lap. Yeah. And at this point, you're, you can't call your husband because you? you can't get cell phone reception. But calls are coming in from journalists, right? So you're actually doing interviews yes. at this point with your interviews. And I, I, I admit I did one interview while nursing. <laughs> I mean, it was so such madness, you know, and 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 these calls as, you know, are, you know, from top journalists who are probably have some Rolodex in which it you know, says terrorism. And, and I'm serving on the uh, or had we had just given our report, the Commission on Terrorism, essentially saying America was unprepared for what bin Laden was trying to do. Um, you know, are, are finding me through my assistant back at work. Um, and I'm doing these interviews and, and they are questions like, who is bin Laden? What is Al Qaeda? Why is he in Afghanistan? Um, and also, is this war? I mean, already the questions about what what is this? What is this attack and how is the United States going to give meaning to it or understand it? Um, and And then this sort of realization that not only was I you know, not only am I trying to educate reporters and, and others that I'm uh, uh, talking to through journalists, but that there's, you know, a couple hundred people on the train heading into New York City and that sort of my responsibility to them and, of course, uh, Cecilia. Yeah, because, of course, we didn't know at that point that the, the attacks were, were over. So we didn't know what was right. going to happen next. Yes. I mean, it's, it, you know, we have to like, it, not only were the attacks not over, I mean, just remember the, the, the chain of misinformation that was going on that day. I mean, you know, uh, Bush was dead, Cheney's gone missing, the White House has been hit. And I, you know, and, and you know, we had no way on the train to process any of this. And, and I remember 
uh, hearing someone saying the towers fell. And first of all, you didn't know, I didn't know if that was true. We had no images. And then I just remember thinking, how do skyscrapers fall? Because if you haven't seen it, I had assumed, right, that it's like a domino, that they're going to tilt over. And it wasn't until we arrived in New Haven and there were TVs up that I saw, oh, that's, that's how towers fall, right? I mean, and that's, you know, and that, that those images we still remember today, almost 15 years later. So, and I, and I recall that you, your mother woke you up from your delusion, right? You finally <laughs> yeah. got her on the phone. <laughs> I did. I anything, you know, good, a good mother. Um, uh, my parents, the, the geography can be a little bit confusing. We, I grew up in California, but my parents happened to be in New York that day as well. And so I was actually going to see them and, and my sister and my um, my parents who are in New York, but are on the Upper West Side. So they know what's going on, are are realizing that the city's about to shut down. They have access to TV that, that they might not be able to get out. And so they resourcefully uh, rent a car in Connecticut. And so they sort of just say, OK, if we can get out of the city where I'm going to get where they're going to get a car in Connecticut and try to come to Boston. And I'm on a call with her and um, saying, well, I'll you know, this is you know, I'll come to New York. And she is the one who said, you're you're going you realize you're back at work. You know, I mean, this is this is your work, right? I was teaching at the Kennedy School at Harvard. I am on various government programs and advisory uh, councils about this growing threat of terrorism. And it was like, oh, that was like the light bulb that, that you know, I thought I was going to have a couple months off and hang out with my newborn and, and work out, you know, do whatever we do during real maternity leaves and, and five weeks into it. Um, you know, when my mother said, you know, you know what this is, you're going back to work. Um, uh, and it was just like, yeah, I'm, this is it. Um, and this is the moment that we never wanted to happen, but that those of us in the field had been warning about, uh, and, uh, and that realization at that, at that moment, eventually I did get to New Haven. I did reach David and he, um, picked me up and we, and we drove back home. So you, you've distilled many of the lessons, maybe all of the lessons you've learned thus far into this concept of resiliency, right? Which, and, and you know, this phrase, shit yeah. happens, which you distinguish. I was surprised when I reached this point in the book where you distinguish it from keep calm and carry on, the, 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 the famous British yeah. myth about the, the, what those posters did during World War II. So can you just, just define your concept of uh, resiliency yeah. and, and how you distinguish it there from just not letting the terrorists win by not yeah. doing anything differently? Yeah. So it is, it's uh, remarkable when you, you know this, when you write a book, what you actually discover when you research things, right? And so let me start with resiliency by what it's not, because there's various phrases to describe, uh, you know, as zeitgeist, right? In times of, uh, in, in times of conflict or, or potential violence. So what, can, what emerged out, out of the Bush administration after 9-11 was this concept of never again. Um, you know, and, and Cheney, you, uh, the Vice President Cheney, you know, said it was the 1% rule, right? You know, if there's a 1% chance of terrorism, we're going to do anything we can. But it was essentially a notion that was easy to, to understand, hard to implement, which was Fortress America, which was essentially that we would put all of our efforts, both abroad and domestically, to ensure that never again, that this would never happen again. And as I say in the book and have said consistently, even in, even when I was in government, it's a it's a, a mythic standard. It is a fool's errand and that no country like ours, uh, either before or after September 11th, was ever at zero percent 
risk and that our vulnerability was actually a sign of our strength. Uh, but we bought it, right? We bought the never again and that, and, that, and that our invulnerability was a sign of our American exceptionalism. So that, but that proves an impossible standard. For one, um, you know, wars abroad show that we are vulnerable and that we can't fix the world um, like in Iraq and Afghanistan with, with just troops. But also, as I report in the book, you know, as early as one month after September 11th in October of 2001, President Bush calls uh, Tom Ridge into his office. Tom Ridge, people remember, was the governor of Pennsylvania, resigned his job after September 11th, becomes the Homeland Security advisor to, to President Bush. And he says to Tom Ridge, alone in an office uh, with his chief, only his chief of staff there, he says, um, listen, I just got a call from the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Canada. And they say that we, you know, that this fortress America is not working for trade, which is true. Um, and so Bush says to Ridge, we have to let go a little, right? You can't even imagine, you know, Bush, who's so known as Fortress America, never again. But just recognizing a month later, a country like ours with millions of people crossing borders and trade and commerce and ideas and people moving uh, was going to get to Fortress America. So I sort of put the never again standard uh, uh, to one side. But what what resiliency isn't as well is the is the exact opposite of that, which is the sort of, you know, keep calm and carry on and, and you know, the sort of um, what will be will be attitude. Um, people remember the keep calm and carry on mantra sort of started emerging in about 2005 as the war in Iraq and Hurricane Katrina um, show uh, a government very unable to uh, keep us, um, uh, that was very incompetent. Keep calm and carry on was understood. And I understood it when I started writing the book as a, um, uh, a propaganda campaign coming out of the War Council and Churchill uh, during World War II as a way to tell the British public uh, about how to face uh, and the attitude that they should have in the face of what truly was for them an existential threat, which was Nazi Germany. I believed that this was how they got through it. And then I started doing some research and learned that the keep calm and carry on, which as you know, had Mary, many variants, the keep calm and call me Mary, the keep calm and yeah, call me, uh, call me maybe the keep calm and eat chocolate. I never was released by Churchill and his war council. Uh, they had a million of the posters made um, and they sat on it. Uh, it wasn't discovered until 2005 when a bookstore, bookstore owner opens up some old boxes in his bookstore um, and discovers them and he puts them up on the wall. People love them. And then uh, they became sort of a world phenomenon. And going back and discovering, why would Churchill and why would the War Council have done that? And um, essentially it was because uh, the keep calm and, and carry on mantra philosophy was exactly uh, not what a society needs in the face of, of mayhem, whatever it may be. It was too passive um, that in fact, uh, what Churchill needed at the time was obviously for the men to go to war and the women to to enter the manufacturing and commercial market and for them to send their kids to the countryside of all things. Uh, and so that idea that keep calm and carry on was passive, was really not about resiliency, uh, really did um, animate uh, a notion of resiliency that really derives from the word itself. Resiliency means re means again, of course, but Silient means jumping. It's very active. It means essentially investments in our society, in our capability to respond in our, and recover and then uh, build again better. 
uh, that is what are, are the policies behind uh, resiliency. It is very active. And if I could, through the stories of Homeland Security, get people to understand that a nation that too focused on stopping all bad things from happening was not going to nurture its response recovery and resiliency efforts, that that, that would be in the, in the long term a bad investment. Yeah, well, I want to stay with this this issue because it's. I feel like there's a paradox at the at the heart here that we we need to somehow grapple with. Because so, as you say, we obviously can't protect ourselves against everything, and the mere attempt to do that would be stifling of more or less everything we care about. We can't live in some kind of panopticon, you know, self-imposed prison where we subject ourselves to you know, truly Orwellian intrusions just to keep us safe from from our enemies. But the paradox for me is that there, I think there's a, a rational fear to have of irrational fear. So it, it, it seems rational to me to be, quote, irrationally concerned about specific risks, given that we can be more or less certain that everyone else will respond irrationally when these events actually happen. So, so you take something like and this is, this is an example. I don't know if you do this in the book, but my friend Bill Maher has, has made this point publicly, and I thought it was, it was quite insightful. He pointed to, to Hurricane Katrina, and he's, he, he asked us to remember how we responded to this. And you know, as inept as our response was, this was a, a discrete problem that, that we just kind of, once we got our act together, we cleaned it up. A thousand people died, or, or you know, a thousand plus people died. and there was billions of dollars in damage, and we we rebuilt New Orleans, and and it's over. If that had been a terrorist attack that created precisely that level of damage, it could have been a, a his, another history-defining event where we would launch multi-trillion-dollar wars, and the, the, the global economy could have been plunged into a depression. I mean, who knows what would happen with another terrorist event that scale, and so. His point, of course, is that it's we should have our response be more in register with the the actual costs of the events and not overreact. And so, and and the the, the difference between a natural quote natural event and a man made one shouldn't be as big as it is. But I think that given that I, that it will inevitably be that big, that we will we won't actually be able to we can't reach the dial in our brains that will make a hurricane equivalent with an act of terrorism, or an act of terrorism equivalent with a hurricane, given that there, there will be a mass panic and economic damage that is, in the final analysis, irrational, it seems rational to build those costs back into our planning for these events. And so I just want you to, re to reflect on that a little bit. It's, it's a great point, and, uh, and it, it does, in some ways, um, reflect uh, where, you know, I call it in the book, the Homeland Security Apparatus, which is uh, both maligned and misunderstood. So, you know, but, uh, and, and, and rightfully so, maybe in both instances. But um, oh, so just to explain the thinking for those in the field. Um, 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina was a pivotal moment for Homeland Security, not because, as you know, People didn't die from the hurricane, right? They don't die from the hurricane. They, they, they died from government incompetence. 
And for those of us in our in 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 that world, looking at it, analyzing it, studying it, you know, realize there's a lot of systemic reasons for New Orleans, and you know, it was a, a a city that that had no that had no resiliency built into it in the first place, just given, um, a, you know, centuries of neglect, including the fact it was built in a tub basin essentially. But that that um, it really moved. Uh, uh, the apparatus towards thinking about an all hazards approach to response. Because before that, uh, we were so focused as a nation on terrorism, right? Then the night, stopping 19 guys from getting on four airplanes. That was our, that was our strategy that we had failed to, uh, uh, appropriately plan and prepare for any shit happening, right? That any big thing happening. And so there was a change by 2005 and certainly 2006. The Bush administration changed after Hurricane Katrina. There's no, I talk about two different Bush administrations. There's up to 2005 and after. And if you look at the polling that um, uh, Iraq was bad, but Bush's polling never uh, bounced back after Hurricane Katrina. And what happened in Homeland Security is we started to talk about an all hazards approach to response, that the firefighter at the moment of the fire does not know whether it's, you know, two brothers um, at the end of the Boston Marathon, a generator or an errant cigarette, you know, generator on fire or an errant cigarette that blows something up, you know, you and and it didn't matter at that moment because all what we need to do is invest in the response. Uh, to minimize the the harm that occurs. So so in terms of on the response side, after the boom, as we call it in my world, you know, after the boom, there has been a focus on um, on sort of this all hazards approach. But and as you say, and I agree with this this point, um, you shouldn't. One should not blame the American public for being terrorized by terrorism. I mean, in other words, if if after San Bernardino, you saw the polling go absolutely nuts. Um, that, that's the terrorist, you know, goal, right? And and government and good government, and I have, I believe that uh, Obama has been very flat-footed on this. Recognizes that terrorism, whatever the consequences are of the attack, that terrorism is different. It hits a, a psyche that people will act irrationally, but that their irrationality, as you say, is somewhat rational. In other words. Uh, because it's a purposeful attack. It's very different than a hurricane, very different than the errant cigarette or a generator. So it's purposeful. And that does have a, a different impact. And so in my ideal world in which government behaves well, you know, after something like this, it would be able to, uh, you know, uh, to, to guide that irrationality uh, towards, um, towards rationality, would begin, would put it in perspective, would not, would not essentially blame people's irrationality on, as, as Obama did, on Trump or cable news. So people, no one, no one watches cable news. I mean, the idea that, you know, you know, a million people watch CNN. I'm on CNN. I know very few people watch CNN. Um, and so that, you know, so, so, be, so, I, so that distinction is, um, is, I think, important for, for government to do. And I, I describe it as a parent about this irrationality factor. And you certainly know from your work, you know, the black swan phenomenon, right? That, that um, there are black swans, right? And, uh, and they're very rare. And their appearance uh, has a disrupt, you know, the, the black swan theory is their appearance then has a dis- disruptive impact on the course of history. So there's black swan moments, 9-11 being one of them. Um, and 
you can tell me as a mother that the chances that my child will die um, uh, from terrorism is 0.00001%. You can tell me that and I get it and I can get calculations and risk and all that stuff. But if my child is that 0.0001%, right? If my child is, is the one that sees the black swan, that is an existential crisis for me, right? And, and so I kind of get people's irrationality and, and also try to steer it towards understanding um, that in a world like we live in, you know, we have to accept a level of risk and vulnerability, um, uh, uh, regardless of, of, um, uh, of our hopes and wishes that it weren't so. Yeah, well, I'm glad you, you raised the issue of purpose, because that, that does show how a, a terrorist attack and a hurricane are not analogous. Yeah. Because you know, when, you, when you have a hurricane, it doesn't suggest that at any moment you could have another hurricane of that scale or that somebody is plotting to, to deliver you the next hurricane as quickly as possible. Whereas with a terrorist attack, you, it's, it's ongoing, it's emblematic of the next thing your enemy is attempting to do. So, but I, so, I, so in, in that sense, it's not strictly irrational to, quote, overreact to terrorism or react differently to terrorism yeah. than you would to a natural disaster. But I guess I, even in a case where it is totally irrational, I, I see that, that I think probably a better example would be like a plane crash. So flying is very safe mm -hmm. and you know, famously safe and yet famously feared by many people, even most people. And when a plane does crash, I think most people have a reaction that that would be one of the more horrible ways to die. Yeah. And yet, if you if you were just going to go by body count, I mean, we have you know, more than 30,000 people die on our roads every year, year after year, and we just accept it. And and I don't know how many people die by plane crash, but it's got to be you know less than a hundred on on a on a yearly basis. It's, it's tiny. Yeah. And if you if you if you compute the you know the man hours, person hours exposed <laughs> to that travel and 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 your danger, it's you know. If you're flying on a reputable airline, it's those are some of the safest hours of your life, being up in the air. And once you get on the ground, you can start worrying. Yeah. And yet, given the horror people experience in response to a plane crash, I think it makes rational sense to over-engineer the safety of planes, to make them safer than would be strictly rational if you just were trying to save lives based on body count. Because if we had it, just imagine what would happen if the president said, listen, we're spending a lot of money to make our planes safer than than they need to be. What we sh we should be making cars safer. We should be making roads safer. We should be making playground equipment safer. This is this is what's killing all of you and your kids. So I'm going to take some of this money we've spent on on the FAA and and you know the engineering of, of plane engines, and we're going to spread this around. It would just take a few big plane crashes to get everyone to react against that and and do the irrational thing, which I think in this case would probably be rational. Because if everyone stopped flying, if someone said, listen, I'm just too afraid to fly now, which many millions of people might do, well, then, you know, our economy would grind to a halt. So you have this cascade of effects that, again, even though they are not strictly rational, if they're reliably going to be produced, you, you, you have to build that into the cost in advance in, in, in your thinking about these problems. I, I think that's ex ex exactly right. I mean, what, what, the airplane is a perfect example, because um, and it's something I've struggled with being in the field, um, which I describe in the book as the, the ratchet up 
um, phenomenon of safety and security. Very easy to ratchet up, right? Because there's, you know, fear and especially after a, a terrorist attack or, you know, lots of money, lots of goods, lots of gizmos. Very hard to step back and say, okay, what's the level of risk that we are going to tolerate as a society? And we're doing this all the time anyway, uh, that would justify taking some of that apparatus or those rules or regulations off of, uh, in this case, airline um, security. It is, and so, and part of this for, I think, Americans and, and uh, is uh, the control factor uh, is, the, what's the what, what's the aspect of a plane crash that just is so horrible? Every part of it is horrible. But is that you're sitting there hoping to God the pilot, you know, you've given control over where when you're driving, right? It's it's okay. Well, I I have some control over uh, where I go, what time I drive, whether I text, and so part of that, part of what I think, you know, what I'm trying to do through the book and through where I am now in my thinking about Homeland Security, which is very much focused on the other side of the boom, right? Which is on very much focused on preparedness and, 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 and response and, and minimizing risk when something does happen is to give people a sense of control over things that they feel like they have no control over. Because I think that's, plane crash is horrible. I think that's also why people freak out about terrorism. It's not just purpose. It's also, oh my God, I have no control over this stuff happening in Syria. And I don't even understand what ISIS is. It feels like an amorphous blob, but all I know is it can show up in my kid's school, you know, one day. And uh, part of, a, of, a, of, of accepting a certain level of risk and vulnerability in this country is is on the other side is is trying to empower the public not just with knowledge but with what tools would you want or would you desire to have to give you more control given that you're not going to get the vulnerability to zero. Well, so now, what would you say are your greatest security concerns at this point? So, I mean, <laughs> I could. I mean, given the world I've been in, I could. I, I must have some good gene that my husband says I don't have the stew gene that I actually tend not to stew on things, which is probably a good thing to have in my field. And as a mother of three, but um, I, you know, obviously there's infinite numbers of things that worry me um, on the, on the substantive side, it's, cl it's clearly climate change. I'm, I'm, I'm with Bernie Sanders on this, on terms of the existential threat um, of, of the movement of, uh, of the earth, uh, whether it's the oceans or megastorms or, a refugee crisis and um, that is going to change uh, uh, the way we live globally, the way we live domestically, the way we live in urban societies in ways that we can't even predict right now. And so later on in the book, I get into ways to think about um, how we might prepare to be more resilient from that harm. I'll tell you the more, as if maybe philosophically, what worries me now is that uh, we we've built no resiliency into our um, into how we live our lives, that we don't accept that shit happens. Uh, and therefore, anytime there is a disruption to the system, we have the kind of uh, proposals that are being made um, by Trump specifically, but even Ted Cruz, uh, that uh, will make us more vulnerable over time. I um, no, this is also, you know, I, I'm not a, a religious scholar. So, I, you know, I just look at this from a safety and security perspective. But I do know um, that if you asked me from the safety and security perspective, 
what has made America relatively safe? You know, we have gun problems, we have violence, whatever. I get that, but relatively safe from the the generational challenges or uh, problems in the Middle East, the civil wars in Africa, and now what we're seeing, the the terror in Europe. Uh, what? Why is the United States immune from that in, so, in some ways in, in recent history? So it's clearly our oceans. We you, you can't drive from Boston to Damascus. I get that, right? So we, one is our oceans. The other is our ability over, you know, over centuries not perfect. We definitely have counterexamples. We definitely have been, haven't been great at all times, but to assimilate and acclimate and elevate the other, uh, whether it's the Irish here in Boston or Mexicans in California or Puerto Ricans in New York or Muslims in America. We, we have a problem in this country. We don't have a crisis, right? We have cases. Um, and the reason why is because of the 6 million Muslims in America you know, the vast majority of them, we can find counterexamples, but the vast majority of them are invested in the safety and security of a nation that they call home. That's not true, as you know, in Europe right now. Um, and uh, that's a good thing. That's a that's a security strategy that's not only, you know, feel good because we can say that's, you know, the, that's the American way, but it's also uh, operationally and tactically good. And so what makes me nervous is we'll forget that that's a that's that's actually integration. Assimilation is actually um, a security strategy and any any proposals that stray from that. Uh, may have long-term consequences that we we can't see now, but we might see later. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to stick with some big picture concerns for a moment, but I but since you yeah. opened that door so wide, I think I'll, I'll just rush through it and and hope we'll get back <laughs> to the big picture at some point before we wrap up. Because this is this is something I wanted to talk to you about. You know, you write in your book at one point that profiling is not only unwise or makes us less safe; it's it's un it's I think you say it's, it's un unwise at, at best and, and unlawful at worst or, or something like that. So you're against profiling, and I am uh, quite famously now or infamously for profiling under some construal. And you know, I, I hope that our, our difference here is mostly a matter of semantics, but it, maybe it's not, and maybe you can convince me that I, I'm wrong, and I, I'm certainly open to that, and I know there are many people listening who wish you would. So <laughs> let me just tell you what I mean yeah. by profiling, and then you can, you can perform an exorcism on my brain. <laughs> so for me, profiling just means, I think this word has acquired a, a stink that it doesn't deserve, although it's the reasons are, are pretty obvious. But for me, profiling just means using some statistically relevant information to narrow the focus of your concern. If you have some threat, I mean, we, we can take this out of the realm of, of terrorism. It could just be, it could be anything that, any bad behavior that you're worried about from your fellow human beings. If you have no information at all, if you, if you view every human being of any age, any description, either gender, as being equally likely to present this threat to you, well, then you are not profiling. And then randomness, you know, being equally concerned about everyone is the only method of search at that moment. But if you have any relevant information, literally anything, like you're more likely to be raped by a man than a woman, say, you are profiling. And now the conversation becomes, what is it rational to take into account? What are the risk factors? What is, what is valid information statistically and what isn't? 
But then you, you, you've already started down the path of profiling. And I'd like you to react to that, but I, I guess I'll just also remind our listeners, I, I don't know how aware you are of my views on profiling, but all I've ever said about profiling in terms of, of defending it as a practice has been really in response to what I've considered just obvious wastes of time on the part of people who have limited time at the TSA. So when I've written about profiling, I've, I've, I've talked almost exclusively about what happens in an airport, which frankly, I don't see so much anymore. And now that we have, you know, TSA pre-check, you know, and, and I'm not even taking my shoes off anymore, I, this has sort of faded into the background for me. And I'm not seeing these really florid misuses of time and attention, which we mm-hmm. you know, now, which we used to call security theater. But my experience has been going through an airport and seeing to a moral certainty Something like 50% of the people going through security with me, I know are not jihadists. I know these people are not going to blow themselves up on a plane. I can see this at a glance. And I actually did, I, I played this game with, with Majid. We were traveling in Australia, and he's, he's quote, against profiling too. And, and he's just the sort of person who would be profiled. And so we, we, we had a chance to go through security in, in airports three times, and we played this game each time. And, and, you know, our, our intuitions more or less totally converge. I pointed to the woman over there and I said, no, what are the chances she's got a bomb in her bag and she's going to blow herself up on this plane? And w- we both could agree that we would get on the plane knowing that she had not been searched, right? Now, forget about, forget about the luggage. I think all luggage should be screened because you can put a bomb in someone else's bag. But it's just we have to be honest about what we're looking for. We're looking for people in this context who could conceivably want to blow themselves up on an airplane to die that they're, they're ready to right. die that day based on their ideology. And the truth is, there is only one source on earth of this ideology at the moment. It's not to say that there are not other people who could be suicidal for other reasons. But if you're going to talk about who, what ideology is producing the, these people in, in quantity, right? People willing to die, people willing to blow up themselves along with their families. If you're searching a family with kids, you have to, you're searching for people who are willing to blow up their own kids or somebody's kids who they're traveling with at that moment. And there's only one ideology that's producing this, and it's coming out of a single religion. So, so the religious variable is relevant. And, it, and so if you, if you know someone with a beard is Amish rather than a Salafi, it's relevant that they're Amish, right? The fact that they're Amish means something from a security point of view. So my view on profiling is, has really, has not been, let's, let's scrutinize Middle Eastern men in particular, because, because I've always said that I fit the profile that I, that I recommend. I think, I think a white guy, a middle-aged white guy like me, who, who you know, shaves his face, could be recruited to Al-Qaeda or ISIS yeah. because we, we, have the, we have those examples, right? So I, I fall squarely in the bullseye, but there are still half the people in the airport who don't. Anyone who looks like Betty White has not been recruited to ISIS. I, I know this. <laughs> now, the moment, the moment they successfully recruit someone who looks like Betty White, I will change my tune, right? But they haven't done it and they, ha- they haven't even been close to doing it. And so, so that's my, my bit about pro- profiling. I'd, I'd love your response. So, yeah. So, so let me tell you, I, I understand what you're saying. So I want to answer back maybe a little operationally because, um, not, uh, because I think in, in some ways what you're saying is may not be as far from what's actually happening. So, so operationally and, and, you know, in terms of how it works, 
almost any sophisticated security apparatus, whether it's at the Super Bowl, at an Olympics, at an airport, wherever, is um, isn't a single moment of entry. It's we 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 try to do something called a layered defense, which is you have multi and think about cybersecurity and protecting cyber networks that you have um, multiple layers. So if one gets penetrated, there are eight behind it, and also so so that's going on essentially behind the scenes, of which there are all sorts of metrics that are being. Uh, evaluated before the moment you get to the uh, to to the to the detector. That's you know where are you flying to? When did you buy the ticket? What's your previous uh, travel history? Uh, did you buy uh, with cash? Did did you go to Turkey? Seem to go missing for three months and then return back through Istanbul. This is why you know so so all this is going on before the moment you're at the line. So. So and that you could call that profile. It's not really pro. It's it's more behavioral profiling, you know, historical profiling. Then so then when you're at the line, the problem that you have from a profiling perspective or not profile is if your pool is a billion people large or, or even divide by half for for men. Although we know now that's that may not even be a fair distinction. Your if your pool is half a billion people, it's so overbroad as to be unhelpful. So that's why all this other stuff is going on beforehand so that we're going to minimize that. We're going to try to get that number smaller. Um, and then, you know, inevitably, um, uh, hopefully the combination of behavior before you get to the line, plus a layer defense that sort of describes, you know, that the sort of, I don't want to say captures what's happened before, will then get your pool to even smaller, right? And so, because that's all you're trying to do is get these these pools smaller. So the problem with profiling is people understand, it's not, you know, as people understand it, is that the, it's not that it's, it's mean to people who are Muslim. It is that that pool of traveling Muslims, you know, may not be a billion, but it's certainly probably 250 million. Um, and that's just a big pool. So that's why we talk about layer defense um, of which behavior, which may correlate with a certain religion, in other words, travel to Muslim countries probably equates with uh, uh, religions often. So that's that's why people like me, because I worry that profiling in and of itself is taken as, okay, well, if we just did this one thing, right, if we just were rational about who the risk is, that would cure it. But there's all sorts of other stuff going on. But I, I want to talk about the under-inclusive problem. The, the reason why Betty White is taken um, uh, you know, aside to be to be checked isn't is is because because you have both you have an overbroad problem. In other words, your pool's too big, but you also have a, a, a an under inclusive problem, which is we don't know what the threat is like. We used to think it was just men; it's now women. We used to think it was this; it's now that, or what, whatever it can be. Um, and so the randomness of of whether it's we're going to pull aside every fifth person, which is probably what it is, or it, it's actually interesting. It's it's five, seven, you know, number five, number seven, number 11, number two, number, you know, so it, it's a, a randomness that's built into the system is what you're seeing. And that randomness is um, uh, is not only built into the system, but, you know, it's 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 understood by those performing at the TSA agents to be random. They're not idiots. They see that they're about to search number 11, who looks like Betty White, but what they, but because of the under-inclusiveness problem, it's just, it's the only way to deal with that challenge. So that's how I 
think about it um, uh, in terms of a layered defense going through not just airports, but through any um, uh, sophisticated security apparatus. Uh, and so that's sort of, you know, um, I get what you're saying. And, and in some ways, um, I, I can understand that it's just from an operational perspective, you've got, you know, 22 year old TSA agents, right. Um, who are, who are in the field. So if you could build a system that both, uh, that both addresses the over-inclusive problem and the under-inclusive problem. It may look irrational from your perspective, but at least it's giving some rationality to the problem. Yeah, well, I acknowledge that there's a role for randomness. I, I think the randomness, yeah. I think randomness can be curated, however. It's like, like when randomness is, is causing you to obviously waste time, yeah. that seems, frankly, a little crazy to me. No, Sam, and that's fair. I mean, that's why the right, I mean, that's why the, and that's fair. And I think where TSA has probably gotten more sophisticated is being able to bypass the randomness. And so part of what I say in the book is, you know, security is constantly changing as, as we realize the stupidity in it, right? But also because the threats, there, I put it a different way, there's no finish line, right? I mean, the idea that if we only got this right, then there'd be world peace. I mean, you're constantly having to reform your standards for security. And so one of the more interesting places that airport security has gone is what you just said, which is the, you know, the global entry that, that in five years, there will be two classes of, of travelers. There will be those subject to intense screening and those not. That's, that's what, that's the way the world is going. You know, you just created those two classes because technology now allows mm. you to do so that we, we do all that layered security before you even get to the yeah, airport. Yeah. Well, so I guess I, I think we should keep drilling down on this because I think there's a lot here. I mean, so, for, for instance, you said a moment ago that the problem is not that it's mean to Muslims or mean to people from the Middle East to profile. And then you went on to say why <laughs> profiling was suspect for other reasons. But that really is the problem that most people cite. And I think it was the problem you implicitly referenced when you talked about what makes our society different from Europe. That I mean, one of the strengths of our society is that we have sent a message to Muslims in general, certainly the Muslims who have immigrated here, that you are welcome, that we tolerate difference, that we respect your religious convictions, and you are free to succeed in our society in a way that Muslims who have been ghettoized functionally in Europe haven't been or haven't felt they've been at, at least. And I think you probably worry, let me pretend to be a mind reader here, but I think you probably worry that if we were to follow my prescription, or certainly someone like Donald Trump's prescription, and call out the problem in very stark terms as being one that is born of religion, this one religion, Islam, is producing a death cult that we are right to be worried about, and we have to take steps to protect ourselves from the behavior of the adherence of this one religion. And we're going to be honest about this. We're going to talk about this at length, ad nauseum, and we're going to put pressure on the Muslim community to talk about this as well and own this problem. I think you worry, certainly many people do, that doing that too starkly, however justified it might be on the merits of the, of the, the details, would produce a counter-reaction in the Muslim community that would be that would reduce our security and would lead to the radicalization of more people. And I, so and I, this is something I call, I've called the narrative narrative. I mean, many, many people say we don't want to, 
quote, confirm the narrative of ISIS. ISIS says this is a war between the West and Islam, or between Islam and, and all non-Muslims, and we don't want to confirm that narrative. So we really do have to walk on eggshells a little bit. I have something to say about that, but I just wanted to, I just want to kind of pitch that to you and get you to react. No, I, I, obviously, um, I do worry about the narrative of the narrative, but but I think you're selling uh, the U.S. U.S.'s experiment or wh- whatever we're good at a little short. It's not just the message, right? I mean, the, the Germans and the French are more than happy to say that everyone's equal in Germany. It's it's not just the message. It is actually policy. It is true, right? In other words, that Muslims in this country not only do we create a good, do we, do we speak a good narrative about them or that, that, but that their opportunities are for real. Right. And, and, and that, and that to me is so that it's, it's not just talking points. I mean, in other words, the Europeans can do talking points, but then when you look at their prison population and it's 75% Muslim, you you realize that's just talk. So, you know, I, I do think the narrative is important I, and uh, for not just the generation of adult Muslims, but also obviously uh, American Muslim children who've got to be looking at some of the discourse today and being a little bit worried. Um, uh, but uh, but because I, I do believe it's true. I mean, in other words, that 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 I'm Arab American, I'm not Muslim, but that the the and, and children of an immigrant family and that the experience of uh, of the other in this country is is so vastly different uh, than um, in other countries and is real. So, um, but I, I like the narrative. I mean, in other words, I can't disagree with you because I also like the narrative. It's a good narrative, right? Um, yeah, no, I, I just want to linger on that point for a second. What, what do you think explains that difference? Because it's not just what the the countries or the governments are doing. I don't think it's just policy. I think it's also just by by dint of, of happy accident, the kinds of people who immigrate to these different countries. My perception is, is that, you know, disproportionately in the U.S., you have people coming to get, you know, graduate degrees and to, you have a much more sophisticated cosmopolitan group of people for the most part than you have in in Western Europe. No, that's exactly right. We, the, so just so people understand the demographic of both Muslims and Arabs in America. So most Muslims in America are actually of African descent of the 6 million. Most Arabs or Arab Americans, as I, we call, I call myself, um, in this country are Christian. So that gives you a sense of history, which is, um, uh, you know, Lebanese Christians have no love for Lebanese Muslims. We fought a civil war, <laughs> civil war for many decades over there. So this is a, uh, it's a very, very different group of uh, immigrant communities coming from the Middle East uh, to the United States. A part of that, we just don't have a refugee issue uh, like we, like like Europe does. So I think that's exactly right. So it's it's not just our policies here. It's part of who was in fact coming here. Uh, most of uh, the, the big Arab exoduses. Uh, were were often not related to war over there, but to economic opportunity over here. So that sort of gives you a sense of you know who might actually leave their home country. And so um, uh, and so it is. It, it's a it's a combination of those things. But once here, the experience of being once here uh, here um, is uh, is just a 
a, a very different experience. And look, it's a, we're a country of over 350 million. We have six million Muslims in this country. This is not this. The numbers are so different um, than they are uh, in Europe um, and uh, which are smaller countries with uh, a greater Muslim populations. Uh, and so I think we I think we that that gives us a luxury um, that uh, we don't have to emulate bad behavior. Right. We ha- we ha- we actually do have a luxury here and we should we should run with it. Yeah. Except that that just also motivates the argument of people who would say, well, the, the only way to maintain that luxury is to keep those numbers very small. Right. So the, one of the reasons in, in favor of, of you know, someone like Donald Trump's crazy policy of you know, not letting any more in is this, we are we are precisely as safe as we are because we only have six million Muslims and we don't have sixty million. And the problems we're seeing in Europe are the problems of of numbers on some level. And I think there there's you know I I always have to speak defensively even on my own podcast on this topic <laughs> because yeah you know, I just have to say that I think Trump is a dangerously unqualified to be president and you know, I don't support his view on more or less anything, but. He does, at least on this point, have the refreshing characteristic of at least talking about the variable of religion on somewhat honestly. You know, I don't want him in, to have any more power than he has on a reality television show, but I think at the very least, we, we need to talk about the fact that religion is not irrelevant to this problem. I mean, the, the problem in Europe is even is even scarier than we've thus far suggested because there was a a, a poll recently done in among British Muslims where 88% of the people polled said that that Britain was a good place to live so you have a very high number of people saying that life is good in Britain and many of these people are 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 being supported by a welfare state that we don't have in the US there's a welcome that that Muslims receive in western Europe that they don't get here and yet, in the same poll revealed that one-third of British Muslims wouldn't condemn stoning women for adultery, and almost a quarter want to live under Sharia law in, in the UK. And, and this is the, here's the result that, that worries me the most and, and that I want to map back onto our own circumstance. Two-thirds said that they would refuse to contact law enforcement if they believed someone close to them was collaborating with jihadists. So, so a majority would not narc on the jihadists in their own community, and that really, for me, is the is the the scariest of the scary layers to this onion. Because, and this is what when I talk about profiling, I say that I, I think Muslims have to be convinced to, and should in fact be eager to profile themselves, profile in their own community. No one. No one is better placed to detect the, the so-called radicalized members of the Muslim community than other Muslims, and no one is suffering more and will continue to suffer more from our inability to detect them well. So, and so it's, if, we're, if, if we're going to solve the problem of global jihad, we have to get Muslims to, to solve it. And so the, the, the fact that, and, I, and I, I don't know what would be true of the U.S., I can imagine, I, I don't know if this poll exists for for the US Muslims but the fact that there's any significant number of Muslims who would not contact law enforcement in response to known jihadists in their midst that's the, the that's the war of ideas we have to win yeah. and I know Sam I completely agree with you on that I mean you know people 
I mean, I think Europe is facing uh, generational, generational, multi-generational problem that will not be solved by a few arrests after the Belgium attacks. That you're seeing the same polls that I'm seeing, but you're also, you know, we, the experience. What what is happening there is has to be solved there. I mean, people you know, tend to say, well, you know, we have to get engaged with Syria or Iraq, given what's going on in, in Europe and ISIS. And I like Europe has a European problem. I mean, it, it really does. And, and, uh, and, and I worry, I mean, I'm, I agree with you in that sense that this is not going to be solved um, uh, short term, that, that the kind of polls that you are, are citing um, uh, take a while to change. And I'll, I'll, but I do, but they do change. I mean, Sam, that's the other thing. It's like, look, after 9-11, uh, you know, in the Muslim world, you did polls of Al Qaeda, and in Jordan, Jordan, our happy ally in those days, you know, the Jordan, the Jordanian Muslims are different, right? That's what we, you know, um, and King Abdullah, you know, 40% of Jordanians, you know, at that stage uh, supported, you know, part of uh, whatever Al Qaeda's message was, right? And so, I mean, those are terrifying numbers, right? But then, you know, and this is where you just have to believe that things change and um, is, is you know, after, you know, so Al-Qaeda turned on Muslims, as, as you as you note, and, and the same is true with ISIS. And and uh, and uh, after a, a couple of years, those those numbers then got in, in Jordan and other countries got, you know, to four or five percent. Not a good number, not a good number, given, the, you know, the, the the raw numbers that you're thinking of. But um, but certainly there, there can be those transformative changes over a short period of time. And, and Europe and, and the United States, the, the message is, is this is, a, you know, obviously a European problem, but this is a problem that comes from within and will only be solved by the communities themselves. It is. I agree with you on that. And, and we can disagree about what you call it or is there something in the religion or whatever. But, but the idea that uh, anything but the purging of these elements uh, within the Muslim community—that's uh, going to be the only long-term solution. And some of, the, and, and that means better coordination and communication with um, law enforcement. It means things as simple as, you know, how many Muslim police are there in France? You know, I mean, it means integrating. You know, look. After the urban riots here in the United States, when if you did polling of African-American communities, they were probably, you know, just as bad and they're probably getting there again now. You know, there was a concerted effort that the police state could not look one way and urban areas look another. And so that's when you started to have community policing and diversity hiring and, 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 and a commitment to integrating police departments that that made policing better. It's not perfect, as we certainly know. And so part of it is thinking about creative ways to integrate uh, uh, Muslim communities with uh, a security apparatus. Yeah, well, that, that opens the door to a very interesting topic and, and point of concern for me, because it, there is this, and this is where, unfortunately, one begins to sound like a right-wing crackpot to even voice this concern. But I mean, what we're talking about here is an ideology under Majid's tutelage, I now call it Islamism and jihadism as opposed to radical Islam, or I call it political Islam sometimes. But I, So it's, it's distinct from the rest of Islam. I mean, there are people who are obviously, they're Muslims who are not Islamists, and they're not jihadists, and they're, they're, there's no danger that they will be. But 
A hundred percent of Islamists and jihadists are Muslim. The pool is Islam, and we're, we're narrowing the search within that space, and there's no one on the Mormon tabernacle choir we need to worry about waging jihad. We can worry about Mormons for other things. They, they give us Prop 8 in California making <laughs> same-sex marriage illegal, right? So right. There, I have a lot to say about the problem of Mormonism, but it's not the problem that is going to lead someone to blow himself up on an airplane. So the issue with integrating Muslims into our security apparatus, now, if you could integrate the right Muslims, that is that would be the best possible thing to do. You know, so you give give me ten thousand Majid Nawazes, and and you know I yeah. will sleep like a baby at night, right? So I mean that that's who I want running our system in terms of a person having a very clear view of the problem, and yet also being Muslim and also being totally committed to all of the values that uh, we're right to defend, but. There is this sinister behavior on the part of Muslims who pass as, main, quote, mainstream or moderate Muslims who are actually covertly and, and successfully promulgating and prosecuting a kind of Islamist agenda. And occasionally they get outed. But in my experience, especially in the U.S., we are really bad at detecting this in people. And so Majid has this great series of videos or maybe it's just one video, but a series of encounters he's had with Islamists in debates and, you know, interviews in the <laughs> UK. And so it's, it's entitled Merry Christmas, Mr. Islamist. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's Majid pitted against somebody who, up until that moment in the interview or debate, has been passing as a totally rational, totally inoffensive, not at all scary Muslim who is just here to talk about how Muslims are being mistreated and, and discriminated against. and Maja just asks a few pointed questions, which exposes this person's unwillingness to, let's say, disavow stoning women for adultery, right? And he unmasks the, the theocrat there, which has, which has been hiding in plain sight all this time. And journalists are terrible at doing this. And there are, there are liberal commentators and pseudo-journalists who have been protecting these people and protecting the organizations that disproportionately attract these people. And I would say in the U.S. that the, the, the Council of American Islamic Relations has this character for me where, where they're, I'm not saying that all members of the organization are, are Islamists, but there, there are Islamists there and they, they, they play a kind of Islamist game in the way they attack people like Ayan Hirsi Ali or people like Majid or people like me, the way they pretend to find hate crimes that, which on, on further analysis don't exist, you know, where we're talking about ordinary crime, and where, and where they basically defend a, a kind of stealth theocracy. And these are the people who are getting hired by the White House to do things. You know, these are the people who, who, are, who are running outreach campaigns to the, the, the Muslim community. So I, I worry about the fact that we are, based on political correctness, based on the fact that it's taboo to really push it all against someone's religious concerns that we are you know this this again this sounds like the you know the red scare or or you know you know we need Joe McCarthy here to have hearings but there is something to this because because you can just you can see it happen you can see you can see Majid unmask these people and and I have to deal with these people you know in my own capacity and you find yourself talking to someone who has been passing as totally reasonable but then you discover that 
yes, if, if we could only have a properly constituted caliphate, they would be in favor of killing homosexuals, right? And, they, and, they, and what's amazing about it, I mean, there's a software flaw in these people's brains because, or in their culture, because what's amazing is that they can't, they've been lying about everything up until this moment, but they can't, they're unwilling to lie about this because they're not, they're not sure that their community of religious maniacs will know that they're not apostatizing at that moment. So when, when Majid asks these people, what do you think about you know, stoning for adultery in a properly constituted caliphate, on television, they will dissemble all the way up to the point where they're asked point blank what they would do in that circumstance, and they're unable to do it because they're afraid to apostatize in front of their own religious ma maniacs. But I could well imagine a time where you have people who are, have figured out how to lie even in those circumstances, right? And that's, that's scary to me. This really is a worldview that we are, are up against. It's not, people aren't pretending to believe these things. Right. I, I mean, in some ways that's true. I, I, you know, I think we would have a debate over sort of, you know, who, you, people who self-identify as um, representing uh, a, a certain religion and being the the holders of that religion against persecution are self selected um, and they uh, by themselves and so you know those personalities as we've as as anyone who's been on TV knows you know those personalities tend to get higher and higher uh, for reasons that aren't always apparent um, until they are exposed so I, I think that you know the 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 I, I wonder about the numbers. What I what I do know though is that um, uh, that exposing of what it is uh, uh, of of that uh, of that fraudulence is exactly right, and and no one who does it should be accused of uh, as you are as Majid and others certainly are of being sort of you know not uh, you know sort of politically incorrect or anti. Muslim, like fraud, fraudulence, or not even fraudulence, or antiquated, violent attitudes, and by anyone uh, should be exposed. But I, I, you know, I think you're in a, in a, in a discourse of um, such heatedness, you and you know what you're trying to do that that you know maybe you're seeing such a a small percentage of of what's out there. Um, and I think it's right. I think, you know, Muslim lawyers and teachers and those who, you know, if you said, will you go on TV to, to you know, be the, the you know, the, the holder of, you know, Muslim political correctness, they'd be like, I, I got three kids and a job. I'm not interested in that, you know, so. Well, let, let me get, let me give you one example just to, just to put a fine point on it. Maybe you know her and you can react and you can disabuse yeah. me of my paranoia yeah. if so. Do you, do you know this woman, uh, Dahlia Mojahed? I don't. I don't. Okay. Who's... So she's a. She's a trained attorney. I okay. believe that's her background. But she's been appointed by Obama at least twice in in some capacity for you know outreach to the Muslim community. She she's a, she's a hijabi. She wears a hijab, and she's she runs the Gallup Center for for polling on this topic. So she's now responsible for polling Muslim pu public opinion, and she's allied with uh, John Esposito at Georgetown, who who runs a Saudi funded Middle East studies program. And she's, she, I, you know, she and I have, have sniped at each other on Twitter, and I've talked about her on the podcast before. She seems to be a straight-up Islamist. I mean, she has some connections with the Muslim Brotherhood. She's a, a darling of care. She, when you get her talking about Sharia, she'll, she'll talk about how empowering it is for women. 
She will whitewash everything about Islam that is very difficult to whitewash, including the fact that she'll say that ISIS has nothing to do with religion, that none of the people there are even religious. This is a purely secular phenomenon. She does this on Meet the Press, sitting right next to my friend Azra Nomani, who's a journalist who was the best friend of Daniel Pearl. And, and Azra, you know, tries to call her out on her deception in that in that circumstance, but it's you know this, it's not a great forum for it. In any case, she had a hand in writing Obama's famous Cairo speech, right? So she's I mean, these people are in the room with the president uh, on some level, and yet. If I think if you drill down on on the world she wants to build, she, she just gave a TED talk that people loved, right? And and it was a, this this sanctimonious framing where she's wearing a hijab and she says, "What do you see when you look at me? Do you see a a, a Muslim extremist? Do you see a mom? Do you see?" She's playing on everyone's fear of being a bigot, of being intolerant, of of being less than perfectly welcoming of difference, and it's a very good fear to have, right? I mean, we uh, you know, this is the this is what is good about liberalism. But there is something sinister about this because the world she wants to live in, I am convinced, and if it's not her, it's someone indistinguishable from her, is essentially a theocracy. Until we're willing to, to talk honestly about this and oblige the Muslim community to talk honestly about this and, and, and really vet itself, we're going to be in the status quo, which is becoming increasingly uncomfortable, and we're going to see the rise of actual demagogues, as they're seeing in, in Western Europe to a, a shocking degree, but as we're seeing with Trump here, and a kind of a polarizing discourse, which is to the untrained ear or the impatient ear, indistinguishable from the kind of conversation I'm having with you now, right? So it's... No, I get that. I mean, I, I do. And I, I mean, for one, like this whole, like, you know, they have access or whatever. You know, I sort of wonder, and this is just my lack of knowledge of, you know, uh, of some of these... Uh, cases. But when someone says that they helped with a speech, sometimes that's different than what actually happened. I've discovered, you know, having been in the situation room and having worked for, you know, two presidents and a governor. So sometimes I always go, what exactly does that mean? It may have been, you know, that the White House had a conference call with various people, you know, of which there was a hundred of them, you know, to discuss the Cairo speech, uh, speech, which I actually think did happen. So, um, so part of it is just, you know, but it's, it's, it's self -reliance. I mean, I dream of a world, right. In which, I mean, in, in terms of these issues, um, you know, and maybe this is just having, you know, lived in counterterrorism and disaster management where, you know, sometimes you measure success, um, and I say this in the book, you know, that that fewer people died, that fewer things went bad. Right. In a world in which you sort of accept that there is going to be a level of vulnerability and risk, no matter how good you are at what you do. Right. In other words, we as a, as a country, we're pretty good at not having radicalized populations doesn't mean we're perfect and it doesn't mean that there aren't problems, but we're pretty good. Right. And, and, but how do you measure pretty good as compared, you know, I know what perfect looks like pretty good, you know, uh, is, is something less than that. And I think that is, um, uh, a challenge for us as a, as an, as a nation and the way we talk about it. I'll, I'll tell you, you, your discussion with, with me at this forum of which I was just the moderator really did, um, get me to rethink how I discuss the problem, how I define the problem, um, this focus on countering violent extremism as a government 
uh, program and policy um, and and whether that should be where we invest our efforts um, really did make me change um, about how I thought about it. Now, you're talking to someone who, even in a world in which, you know, only good things happen, there's still going to be bad things. So a lot of what I also think about is, well, even assuming that we can get this better, right? And even assuming that there was full transparency and that, um, and that, and that elements of radical Islam are, are, are purged internally with populations that don't accept jihadism, uh, violent jihadism as a form of political expression, um, you're still going to have some piece of it that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And sort of also, how do you prepare societies that you, you minimize the risk as much as possible, but you, you also accept that uh, you're never going to get that risk to zero. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. It really is. And that's why I talk about things like layer defense or, you know, that, that um, and that, and that is hard, but I, I just, I do want to go back to this is that, there are many ways, reasons to explain. We can we can disagree on what we call it, but there are many reasons that we can explain um, why the American experiment vis-a-vis uh, radical Islam or jihadism or whatever we're going to call it is has been relatively successful as compared to Europe. There might be multiple reasons for good policy. I also also know what bad policy looks like. So I think even if we can't always agree on um, the discourse or the um, or or the obligations of the Muslim community in America. I think most people agree th- there's some things there's some places we can't go. And I, I just want to end with one thing on on your on your on your Trump thing. I think it's very scary because you, you you clearly are probably with me on this. I, th- I think it's a very bad thing for uh, people who uh, find his form of whatever it is he's doing, running for president as the consequence of, of just stupid people acting stupid, right? He is in my great state of progressive Massachusetts, the one that gave you blah, Mitt Romney and Bill Weld. And, you know, the, those are our kinds of Republicans. Trump got over 50% of the Republican Party in my state. Uh, there's something going on here. And I just think it's incumbent to, you know, constantly make it clear uh, that uh, that what he is talking about um, is, uh, I think, a long a long term strategy to less home, you know, to homeland insecurity. Right. And that's there's something going on in this country and we and it's just incumbent on people of goodwill who even might disagree about the root causes or what the solutions are to unify in their pronouncements that the words of Trump and even Ted Cruz, who tries to sound more benign than Ted, uh, than Trump, but isn't, that they are um, challenged and that, that those efforts will 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 give us greater homeland uh, insecurity, not security. Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree with that. And, and now I'm quite mindful of your time, Juliet, uh, although I'm going to uh, close in the spirit of ineptitude as an interviewer that I, I display. <laughs> I'm going to close with a, a very difficult and scary question, which you can't possibly do justice to in the time allotted. And we'll, we'll just end on a note of morbidity for our audience. But have you seen William Perry's nuclear nightmare video? I have not. Should I? Oh, yeah. You, you, so it's only five minutes long. And I recommend our, our listeners uh, look it up. It's just at five minutes. William Perry, for those who don't remember, was the, um, the sec- Secretary of Defense. He sketches out in, in a 
a very short animated video, a very plausible scenario whereby a, a Hiroshima size, you know, like a 15 kiloton nuclear device could be shipped to an American city and detonated, and in this case, you know, right next to the capital. And it's it's very hard to see how we defend against this. I mean, we're talking about shipping something that looks like agricultural supplies via the normal methods to an American city and detonating it just manually by someone who's willing to die. And it's a, the technology to build these devices is is ubiquitous, essentially. All you need is the, is the nuclear fuel. And so anyway, he, you, you should you should watch that video, and it's it's just very scary. It is. I mean, it, look, I mean, in, it, it, to sound very wonky. So in 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 my world, we we talk about low prob- low probability, high consequence events, right? As and so that's that's that scenario, right? And then the high probability, low consequence events, which is basically gun violence, right? A very high probability in this country, just given the prevalence of guns. But, you know, yes, we have mass shootings in this country, but it's not that's not nuclear Armageddon. And the challenge, right, for policymakers and for the American public is if you only have a limited amount of money to spend on prevention, response and everything else to all of those kinds of threats, how, you know, you see a video like that, you're like, I'm putting all my money on that issue. Right. And then you start to think. You know, this is a little bit like what we did after 9-11, right? We put all of our money on airport security and then then four years later, Hurricane Katrina happens. And it's super it's it's the hardest um, uh, sort of, you know, policy question is is between those two extremes and other things fall in between it, you know, ISIS and other kinds of threats. You know, where would you put your money? And that is in in a world of limited money. Um, and that's that's the the challenge. And what I you know, to be honest, what I try to describe in um, in the book is that we have to stop thinking about the word safe, right? And I, we have to we have to start thinking about safer, right? I can get us to safer, right? Minimize the risk, maximize defenses, maintain our spirit, you know, move on with life. Uh, but no one can ever promise you safe. Um, and if we accepted that, maybe maybe that's resiliency, to be honest. You know, that that's, to me, uh, the, the place where we want to be. Right, right. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to the next time we can do it in person. I hope so, too. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, thanks so much, Juliet. <laughs>